So as we continue our way through the, the book of Luke, uh, we've been working our way through this book for, for a while, section by section. And, and last week, if you were here, you may remember that uh, we, we saw Jesus sending out 72 missionaries on a, a missionary journey. And he, he promised that, that he would be with them. He told them how they were to go about this missionary journey. And what we have in the, our passage today from, from Luke chapter 10 is, is it begins with their missionary report back to Jesus. And then it, it moves on to talk a lot about what it means to, to rejoice. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, um, and we'll be beginning in verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles on your chairs or under your chair or near you somewhere. Um, and this is on page 868 in that pew Bible. So listen as I, as I read. Then the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the, are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, I pray that the, the words of my heart, the meditation of all of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. So you'll notice as I was reading this passage that, that there's a, a theme that, that pops up through this is this idea of rejoicing, uh, of joy. Um, that's what we're going to be, be focusing on. But, but look at how, how Jesus leads into what should be the true object of our rejoicing, which is our, our salvation. Because the, the 72 missionaries come back, give their, their mission report, um, something even like we might see in the church today where somebody comes back from a short-term missions trip and says, this is what happened. Look at verse 17 again. It's the 72 returned with joy. There you see they're rejoicing. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So in other words, what they're saying is, hey, Jesus, we've seen success in this ministry, that we've seen um, demons subject to us. We've seen the power of, of evil fleeing away. Uh, but then, if you look at what Jesus says in response, that, that it seems like he's almost tempering their joy a little bit, because he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Now that's a, a little bit confusing, and you can, you can take it in two different ways. One is where Jesus might be saying, I was seeing Satan fall from heaven through the success of your ministry, through, through demons being subject to you, and, and then that's pointing forward to the overthrow of, of Satan. But I actually think that uh, Pastor J.C. Ryle gets it right where um, the way that he read this was Jesus saying that, that I, I saw Satan fall from heaven um, in spiritual pride, essentially. Um, and that be careful, disciples, um, in, in the way in which you're rejoicing in success, because that can also lead to pride. Um, because their success ultimately wasn't the result of their own skill, uh, their own ingenuity, their own power. Um, but it says that, that it was a result of God's gifting in their life. Because look at it, verse 18. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And so essentially what Jesus is reminding them of is, where did this authority come from? Um, how is it that you experienced success in this ministry? And it was because I am the one who has the true authority I'm the one who has the, the true power. Uh, and, and therefore, don't fall into this kind of spiritual pride. And, and I think you can almost think about it like a, a teenager who's uh, really excited about uh, all the stuff that he has and, and then not recognizing that you know, his credit card is not his own, <laughs> that, that, that the things that he has are, are all a, a gift that he has received. And so, so he's not able to, to boast in those things, but it should actually lead to, to humility and to, to thanksgiving. And I think that, that we can learn something about that today as well, because there are times, thankfully, where we enjoy success, whether it's success in, in work or in life in general, or success in parenting or success in school. And, and then we're, we're tempted to take what is a good joy in God's faithfulness and then turn it into sort of a, a pride within ourselves of look at what we have the ability to do, not recognizing that, that any intelligence is a gift, anything we have is from the Lord. And it's really what the Apostle Paul says, that what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Uh, but then... Jesus takes it actually a step deeper from this, because look at verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice, and there you see the word rejoice again, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And so he's saying, why ultimately should you rejoice? Um, it's, it's not ultimately that we rejoice in our success. It's not ultimately that we rejoice even in the gifts that we have received from God, but he's saying that, that ultimately where we find our joy, where, where we rejoice, um, is actually in the, the love and the faithfulness of God, um, in, in the fact that our names are written in heaven. And so for the, for the rest of our, our time then, we're going to reflect on this of just what does this mean to, to rejoice in our salvation? Because Jesus tells us uh, these three truths about our salvation in this passage, and that all of these truths should, should drive us more and more to want to rejoice in God. So first, we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's eternal plan. 
Uh, Second, we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's eternal choice. And then third, we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's eternal son. So God's eternal plan, that's verse 20. God's eternal choice, verse 21. God's eternal son, verse 22. So first, that we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's eternal plan. And Look at, at verse 20 in your Bible. It says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And so as we said, Jesus is saying, where should your rejoicing reside? Where should it come from? And that it should come from knowing that our name is in heaven. And, and that, that's a way of talking about God's plan of salvation, that, that the name is written, it's set, it's, it's sure. Uh, for instance, uh, in Daniel, in the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, uh, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose book shall be found written, or sorry, whose name shall be found written in the book. Um, also what we heard for our Old Testament reading from Malachi talked of um, our names being written of those who are the Lord's. Um, Philippians 4 says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so you think of this, this book of life, and it, it's not saying that it's a, a literal, physical book, um, and that, but it's, it's this language speaking of God's fixed and eternal plan that is certain that is laid down, that, that there's this, this access to God and his plan of salvation because our name is on his list. And you can think about, I mean, that there's times even in this life where it matters if your name is on the list. For example, uh, when I was young, uh, my fam- family and I were invited to a wedding, and uh, we went to the actual ceremony, and then it's one where you get in your car and you drive to the venue, uh, and then we showed up, and then the um, hostess had a list and was checking people off going into the reception, and we, our name wasn't on the list, and she was like, sorry, you can't come. And we were like, well, we were at the service, and we were invited, and so we left to go get in our car, and the um, groom came out and was just felt really, really bad, and so we ended up coming in. But it mattered at first that our name wasn't on the list. Um, or, you know, more kind of positive side, you know, my wife is a, a dancer, and, and I like it when, when she has a show and I can go to the box office and they say, how many tickets do you want? I'm like, my name is on your list of, of, of people. And, you know, they look, oh, here it is. Here's your tickets, and you go in for free. Uh, because you're, your name is, is, is listed, that there's a, there's a, a prearranged plan. And so as, you, as we think about this for our lives, Two questions that you can ask yourself. Um, do we rejoice more in, in our gifts and success or in the assurance of salvation, knowing that our names are written in God's book? So think about that. Of you know, What really makes you excited? What makes you happy? What makes you want to, to call your friends and to, and to celebrate? Um, and and uh, sometimes I think it's we want to have it be what feels more tangible, what feels more real, the things that we experience day to day in our life. Um, but that's not actually what is most sure and what is most secure and what is the most firm ground for rejoicing. Because the Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so your joy then isn't rooted in just the, the ups and downs of, of life. It's not rooted in what, how is the, the stock market performing today? How many compliments did I get from my employer today? How uh, well is my life going? How are my relationships? How, those are not the things that ultimately uh, should drive our deepest sense of joy. But instead, it's God's plan, God's purposes, knowing that, that when we, we come to, to the Lord, that our, our name is on his list. But then the, the second question to think about from this, though, is, is how does our name actually get on his list? And I think that where as humans we're, we're prone to move into thinking that the way we get onto God's list is through the things we do. So we're going to follow a bunch of rules and ceremonies, and then God will put us on his list. And we also, I think, sometimes think that God is writing his um, list with pencil instead of ink. Where we think, okay, Will did his devotionals this morning. I'm going to write them in my book. Oh, wait, he, that was a pretty prideful thing that he said this afternoon. So now I'm erasing his name from my book. Oh, good, he, he gave money to someone in need. I'm going to write his name back into my book. And that's honestly, I think, the way that sometimes we think of God and his plan. That, that it's, it's just moving in and out depending on the, the whims and, and the ups and downs of our own moral performance. But that's not what the, the Bible says. That the Bible says that what that he writes our name in in covenant love. That that he, our names are, are written in with the the blood of Christ, that they're written in faithfulness and, and faithfulness that will never be undone, that will never fail. And so you think, okay, how does how do I know? He says rejoice that, in, that your name is written how do you know that that's true? And, and you know it when you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. You know that he's working in your life, that your, your name was in the book before the foundation of the world. And so that's the, the first observation here about this joy, that we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's eternal plan. But then second, moving on to the next verse, we should rejoice that our, our salvation is rooted in God's eternal choice. Look at verse 21. So after saying, rejoice that your name is written in heaven, rejoice in God's plan of salvation, then immediately what Jesus does is he himself rejoices in God's plan of salvation. So he models to them what it looks like to do this. It, it, It says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And so there's this, this Trinitarian rejoicing. He's rejoicing as the Son of God through, through the Holy Spirit, praying to the Father. And he says that, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so look at that, that phrase again. He says, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise. And, and so this is this interesting way when he's, when he's rejoicing in salvation, that, that what does he rejoice in? He actually rejoices in God's work of concealing and revealing salvation. And so take first that, that side of, of concealing, that he has hidden these things from the wise. And that what that's saying is that there, there are 
are people who do not rejoice in their salvation because that has been hidden from their face, that, that God has, has put a veil over their eyes. And just to make sure that we're not misreading it or importing something into these verses, here are some other passages in the Bible that say something very similar. John 20, 40 says that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah 45 Verse 15 says, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Romans 9.18 says that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so this is this, this hard truth of, of, that, of God's sovereignty in salvation, of concealing and revealing according to, to his will and his plan. But look at, at, at verse 20 again. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. For yes, for, for such was your gracious will. And so what the Bible isn't teaching some sort of agnosticism, that God is, hides himself and that he's unknowable, but it's saying that, that out of love and faithfulness, he reveals himself, that he makes himself known, and that, that he makes himself known to, to little children, to, the, to those who are weak, to those who, who don't um, have the strength and ability in themselves. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. So he's kind of insulting the church in Corinth, saying, Not many of you were wise. And then he says, But God chose... What is foolish in the world to shame the wise, that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so if you look at God's purpose there, he says that it's all of this, this in his sovereign plan of, of salvation, his, his um, sovereign choice in salvation, is so that no human being might boast. And so it's not, it's not something that leads to, to human pride, but actually to say that, that it's, it's God, it's his grace, it's, it's his mercy. And I imagine that, that some of you may be even kind of troubled by this idea, because it is strange. Um, it, it's hard to, to understand. It seems unfair. And so if you have your Bible, you can actually turn to Romans chapter 9, and this is a, a famous passage where the Apostle Paul is addressing this idea of, of God's sovereignty in, in salvation. And, and he essentially addresses the objection that we might raise to our passage in Luke. And so uh, Romans 9 verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And so you can think, even from our text where he's saying, if, if he's, he's revealing and he's concealing, who can resist his will? Why can he still find fault? How can anyone be held responsible in, in God's purposes? And then look at how he answers uh, the, in verse 20. He says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does Mulder say to its Mulder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And so there you, you hear it from Paul where he's saying that if, if we say this seems unfair, he's saying, he's saying, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He's saying that, that God has the, the, the right, according to his purposes, to display his judgment, to display his mercy in even us whom he's called. And so I think that as we think about this, of moving it from kind of the intellectual abstract down to, to life, that, that as you flip back to, to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 10, and you look at Jesus and it says that he rejoiced in the Spirit. And he rejoiced in God's sovereignty and power and choice in salvation. That, that, that made him um, excited and wanted to praise the Lord because of his faithfulness. That it's God. That salvation is of the Lord. It's not of, of us. And I think that that, that when, we're, when we really see the, the overwhelming grace that, that it's God's, it's him, it's not us, that, that we respond like Paul in Romans 11. He said, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's plan, that it's rooted in God's choice. But then third and finally, we should rejoice that our salvation is rooted in God's eternal Son. Look at verse 22. He says that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so this is saying that, that yes, our salvation is from God's eternal plan, name written in this book. Yes, it's his eternal choice, revealing, concealing. But ultimately, it, it's, and most importantly, it's found in his son as the mediator between God and, and man. And this verse here, verse 22, presents something that I think can be, be hard to, another hard pill to swallow in, in, in our world. Um, because I imagine that, that some of you might say that there, there's God, um, but there are, are, are many ways to God, that maybe God is, is more like a mountain, and that there are many roads to the top of that mountain. And so it doesn't matter which road you take as long as you, you love others and you're respectful to others. Um, and, and, and they would, would say that you know, that road could be could be Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or um, any religion as long as we're seeking to, to love others. But verse 22 here in our text shows that, that that idea isn't compatible with the Bible. It isn't compatible with, with biblical Christianity. Because if you, if you think about it, because I've had people say that, well, all religions are true. And you think, okay, all religions are true. But then Jesus here in our text is saying that, that the only way to know the Father is through him because he's the only one who truly knows the Father. And so if, if, if all religions are true, then this is wrong. 
and this is not true. And so that, essentially what that would mean is that all religions are true except the religion of the Bible because it's saying that, that Jesus is the way to know God. So really the only option is to say that, that one thing is true or another thing um, is true. Uh, but, but look here how, how Jesus makes this claim to be the way to God. He says, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And so you say, well, what does Jesus have? He says, he has all things. And that's something that no other person could claim, that all things have been given me by, by God. But Jesus claims this for himself. But then continuing, he says that, that no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And so what that's saying is there's this, there's this unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And that the only person who knows Jesus Christ truly and exhaustively is his Father, because the finite cannot contain the infinite. And the only person who knows the Father truly and exhaustively is the Son. Again, because the finite cannot contain the infinite. But yet, because Father is God, the Son is God. They, they know each other. They love each other eternally before the foundation of the world. But then we say, hey, well, does that mean that God's inaccessible? And that's what, if you look right after that, he says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there again, you have this, this idea of God's choice in Christ, and saying, well, how do we know God? And, and the way that we know God is through the person who knows him perfectly. And that we know him through his, his son. And so if you're today saying, I, I really want to know who God is, I want to, to know him, then the way that we, we come to that is, is through Jesus. And that's not something that it may seem like, okay, this is, this is narrow-minded or this is, uh, this is an, a, a modern idea. But, but if you think about it, that, that the fact that God opened a way of salvation is, is incredible. And I heard a pastor friend use this illustration one time of, you know, imagine that there was a fire raging out in the lobby. Um, and and those, both of those doors were, were blocked, and, and that door was blocked. And, but we, and I, we said, hey, there's amazing news. There's a door here. We can escape through there to safety. That none of us would say, only one door? Well, aren't there, why aren't there many doors? Uh, but instead, we'd be, oh, I'm so thankful. I rejoice in the fact that there is, is a way. And, that, and that's what we see here in Scripture, that, that there, is, there is a way um, to know God, to, to be brought into relationship with God. And that, that way is, is through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and, that, and we see that the picture of that way that we come to know him here, that uh, the Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we can receive adoption as sons. And so Jesus took on a, a true human nature. He, he lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died a sacrificial death in our place, rose um, from the dead. And so when we repent and trust in him, our sin is counted to him. His righteousness is counted to us. We're accepted. We're forgiven. Uh, we can truly know God and rejoice in his plan. Rejoice that our name is written in his book. Rejoice that, that he has revealed himself to us. Rejoice in his son with hope that never fails. Now, 